This is the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast. G'day listeners, I'm your host Edgar's Grestep. If you're looking to make a change or just try something new, we've got you covered. Each episode we talk to farmers who've been there, done that, and some who are just dipping their toe in and having a go. So whether you're in the kitchen or out in the tractor, it's time for the Big Shift. Welcome back to another special edition of the Big Shift podcast, and I've got my partner in crime, Matt Pierce. Hello. G'day, guys. Happy to be here. (laughs) This special edition is focusing on climate adaptation, and this week we've got to focus on drought resilience. We're heading all around New South Wales, out west to Cobar, up north to Inverell, and down south around Braidwood. Matt, it's fair to say that pretty much every farm that we have visited on our tour has been impacted by drought in some way. What does that actually look like on the ground for these farmers and what's the approach they've taken, I suppose, to managing through these dry times? With climate change, the increase in temperatures and the changes in rainfall patterns, it's been a real challenge for a lot of farms. So these methods that these producers have used to increase the efficiency of water use on their farm by allowing it to infiltrate into the soil and be held within the landscapes of their properties has really allowed them to cope better during these drought events. Well, let's kick it off and we're going to head out west. We out west where the rain don't fall. (laughs) James Blundell, can you hear me singing now? (laughs) We're going to head out to meet a couple who are originally from Victoria, from farming backgrounds, but wanted to find their own patch of land and make it on their own. So Scott and Belinda really took on their property with little capital and they've really had a focus on trying to improve the land, rehabilitate it and increase the productivity. So they bought it from another farming couple and it was sold with all the stock, all the equipment. So the improvements that they've made to the property have just been using an old tractor and some ripping tines. So it's been something that they've looked at it and thought, let's just have a crack. My name's Scott. I'm Belinda. I'm Mary Land Station, Kirigundi, between Cobar and Louth. It's about 15,000 acres. We're running approximately 200 stud ewes, then our young rams, and then we're running just shy of a thousand commercial dorper ewes and lambs here with whatever goats are coming in and out of the property. We ended up purchasing the property just before Christmas 2016, and then 2017 we hit the drought. We were pretty much in drought then from 2017 through to 2021. I think the country was quite scalded too, I suppose, like from the stock and also like from from the drought. There's dust on every second day and and then when, when you once you got over six mil or whatever it seemed to stop soaking in and you could just see it all running down into the gullies and disappear. Being dry for so long, there was no vegetation there at all to hold anything together. And then you get these massive flooding rains. Like as Scott said, we were getting rains of sixty mil in half an hour. It just does a monumental amount of damage. Yeah. It just cemented in our head that we needed to be able to get plants established that even during the drought were going to hold the topsoil there. And not until we did the ripping that changed everything for us. August 2019, we got 
one shower of rain that we got 70 mil of rain in and that was the biggest rainfall we had for the whole drought in one hit and we were just fortunate that we just had a tank cleaned out and they finished two days before. That was sort of where we started the idea from the ripping though, wasn't it? Yeah. The old fella that cleaned the tank out when he come back to the house because it was way out the back he sort of dragged the bucket on the ground and made track a bit wider for us and where the teeth dragged on the ground it sort of only left a little dent in the ground probably maybe two inches deep and with that rain that Blender was just talking about like grass grew everywhere but we really noticed the stuff in those little ruts hung on a lot longer. It's just so distinct even in the real real hard rocky country there was still vegetation holding on and that's kind of where it all started from to be honest like the idea of doing the deep ripping and it was like that aha moment when you kind of go hang on if you can get the water to run into these rip lines it's gonna grow something and hold on a bit longer. Just rip it as deep as we can probably ripping between 150 200 mil sometimes deeper. Well, I like to rip it when it's dry because you can see like it all fractures between the rip lines. If it's wet, like it seems to be easy to rip, but it just smears its way through and it doesn't actually fracture up the ground. So it's better to rip it when it's dry and reasonably hard. Massey Ferguson 1085 that was on the place when we bought it and the ripper was here as well. The gear was sitting there and Belinda was sort of wanted to have a go at planting some stuff, planting a bit of buffalo and whatever. It felt good to bust up a bit of dirt and then we got something to grow there and away we went. What we really noticed in the first sort of six to eight months was the amount of native grasses that grew in the rip lines as well. Like that was, that was a really big eye opener for us. Grasses that we hadn't seen before. We left a couple of rip lines where we didn't put any seed in and in those rip lines it took at least six months longer for the native grasses to get established. It, there was definitely a massive difference between where we had put the oats and buffalo seed and where we hadn't. Probably one of the things that we've learned is you've got to obviously be able to keep the stock off, whether it's goats or, you know, keep the stock out of your paddocks. It doesn't take long for the water to start running over your rip lines instead of getting your rip lines and going in. And if you can keep the stock off, your rip lines stay open for a lot longer. Six mil of rain here will run will run water on this country and we'd come out and have a look at it and where we'd ripped you could come out the next day and it would still be wet like you could see the rip lines were wet whereas you know half an hour two hours after it had rained you'd come out and everything else was dry and dusty and we kind of come to the assumption that that by leaving the tractor width between our rip lines we were actually sort of potentially harvesting all of that water into that next rip line, which was another kind of aha moment for yeah, us. Yeah. We did some ripping on our own and we had a bit of success there. And we had a few other farmers come out and look at it and some people from the department. And then the opportunity came from that meeting of those people to do a project together with the DPI. We could see that what we were doing looked good, but it was just to sort of put some numbers with it and touch a bit of science and technology. Yeah, they've helped us achieve things that we couldn't have achieved on our own without their support. So Scott and Belinda trialled deep ripping and had some really great transformational success on their farm. 
and it was during that time that they were reaching out to the DPI and that then made the project grow a little bit more. They were really keen to continue improving and really rehabilitating their property. They wanted some additional insight into the design to ensure that that rehabilitation work was going to be effective and also wanted to be able to put some numbers around it. That's where DPI really came in to apply some science and a technique called landscape function analysis which really looks at how changes in activities on a farm can change the productivity. When you and I were out there on farm, we were actually able to catch up with the rangeland rehabilitation officer, Paul Feekston, who actually works with local land services there and worked really closely with Scott and Belinda, I guess, to build on the rehabilitation work that they've been doing. Let's just hear a little bit from Paul. My name's Paul Thiexton and I'm the rangeland rehabilitation officer with Western Local Land Services based here in Cobar. In this area, in a summer thunderstorm, you might get 80% runoff rate. So the landholders had already tried things themselves, like ripping. I came on board to provide a little bit of design and technical input to make that project work a little bit better. The other technique that we trialled out at Marylands was water ponding. Now, traditionally, that's done on floodplain country, like the grey soils, but out on Marylands, we had a whole heap of scalded country. So I decided to have a trial of that water ponding technique. You need a large machine, like you need a grater, to create a bank that's quite high, at least half a metre high. It creates these horseshoe-shaped banks that pond water up to 10 centimetres in depth, and then it releases that water and that cascades into the next pond. What we've been finding there, the response has been a lot slower than the ripping, but the ponding does have its place where you've got erosion gullies that have intersected that whole scalded area you need to be able to divert that water from going into that erosion gully and then spread it out and then pond it. So you've got this combination of techniques that we've trialled at Marylands. So the ripping that Scott had initially done didn't have diversion banks. The design that Paul Thiessen brought in was really trying to utilise the ripping in conjunction with the diversion banks. So the diversion banks stop the sort of main energy of the water heading down the erosion gullies and pushing it out into the paddocks. And then in the paddocks, the rip lines allow the water to infiltrate into the soil and then the soil is able to hold onto it and, and better utilise it. I'll just play out this last little bit for you. It's a beautiful story around landscape function and the well-being side of things as well. I'm actually excited for the next drought just to see how it all goes. I think it's a realisation that if you put a bit of time and energy into this country, then there's no reason it can't be as productive as a lot of other areas. Pick a paddock that you can manage to start off with and then go from there. If you start small and you have some success, then it gives you the encouragement to keep going. Yeah, very inspiring, but also inter interesting perspective to hear from Belinda about being excited for the next <laughs> dry spell, as Scott said. <laughs> well, I think it, it just conveys that they're confident that when the next dry comes, that they're, they're going to fare a lot better. You know, the improvements that they've made have increased the resilience of their property, and it's... 
A big part of managing drought is their sort of mental health and remaining positive. So it's giving them hope. So it's not just for the next drought. It can also be for that response as soon as the drought finishes. And being responsive is really important to be able to ensure that you've got pasture there ready to go. If you're prepared for the end of the drought and you're able to buy stock while they're still cheaper, before everyone else is trying to buy stock, then it really presents a fantastic opportunity for producers to recoup those financial losses that they would have seen through drought. And the proof's in the numbers. Since taking over from the previous owners, Scott and Belinda have been able to significantly increase their sheep numbers and run them a lot longer throughout the year. But Matt, it's time to get back in the car and head northeast to Inverell and farmer Glenn Morris, who's a big advocate for climate action on farms. On the properties he manages, Glenn's done a lot of work around contour swales, which are basically shallow, gentle sloping channels with vegetation in them, designed to slow the flow of water and and store it in the landscape. So with Glenn, the building of the contour swales came hand in hand with his improvements that he's trying to make to his soil. His drive to increase the drought responsiveness of his property has sort of flow-on effects for wet periods as well because by having this consistent source of water he's built up the humus in his soil and that's meant that it's spongier, more able to absorb the impacts of flooding rains when, when they come. Let's hear a little of Glenn's backstory and the climate impacts that led him to discover the healing power of humus. I'm Glenn Morris and I'm on a property called Billabong, about 20 kilometres east of Inverell. Moved to Grafton with the family and turned up on a property that was fairly degraded and needed a bit of attention. The Grafton property was quite a poor soil on the hill and then alluvial river flats that were more fertile. There'd been a lot of leaching over the years and a lot of degradation and so it needed some love pretty quickly just to try and get some soil health back. One of the things I noticed about the property at Grafton and the extreme events we were seeing really early, like in 1998 and through to 2000, 2002, was the fact that we were getting a big flood event and, you know, it might only be six weeks later and we're actually looking for rain and we were dry again and the streams were dry. And that really got me sort of thinking about what was going on with the landscape. I'd actually been tipped off that humus had this huge water holding capacity. Now, Glenn doesn't do things in halves. After the humus tip-off, Glenn actually did a master's degree at Sydney University back in 2004 on the topic of understanding the dynamic capacity that humus has to increase soil water storage capacity. The topic of my dissertation was actually looking at how we could increase water holding in the landscape so that we didn't get the soil erosion. So build that sponge, cover the landscape with plants. So one of our key goals over the years is to build humus to deal with the constant challenges of weather events that we're facing and build production in the property. Now, after Glenn's master's degree, he did a lot of research into this and the numbers are pretty impressive. Looking at just one hectare down to 30 centimetres below the surface, for every 1% increase in humus, the soil can store 160,000 litres of water. That's pretty significant when you're coming into dry times. 
But it wasn't just water storage that was the driver for improving humus. It was also stopping erosion that was a really big factor too. Because the climate events were more extreme and we had this land degradation, if I started to think if we could get the landscape healthier, that's going to help deal with these extreme rainfall events to get the water in the soil. So yet you could deal with that extra heat, you could deal with that sort of extra rainfall in that rainfall event, and then it'd still be there to help with the water cycles. It's all these things together. We need the soil health to hold the water and then we need the vegetation to keep pumping it and growing actively. And the vegetation is holding a lot of water on top of the soil and top of the humus when we've got a, you know abundance of perennial vegetation. If we can get this soil health and landscape health and ecosystem health back, then we've got some chance of dealing with these extreme events that I was noticing. Once Glenn identified and understood the patterns in the landscape, he could see certain parts of the farm really suited soak banks and contour swales. And he took us around parts of the property to give us a closer look. So we've got a combination of new swales that we've built, but also ones like this that are modified contour banks. All up, we could have up to eight or 10 kilometers of soak banks now over the property, which are helping rehydrate that landscape and get everything healthy. And so, We've just done some modification, simple earthworks, had a laser level out and just reshaped them a bit so they're on the level now and holding water. There's a level sill somewhere along it which would be about 10 metres wide, a bit lower to let the water come out evenly without any force. It's been in these recent record wet times where we would have had a lot of water concentrating even though we had the pasture work done and that. But if we hadn't done those banks and intercepted the old waterways and spread that water and taken the energy out of it, that water would still be concentrating and it'd still be gaining force and still creating erosion in the gullies and still hitting the creek with all the other water from every other property and eroding the creek as well. And we had a field day the other day with the Maloon Institute looking at this as a economical way of getting some rehydration done across the landscapes because there's so many soil conservation banks everywhere that we can use to bring back soil health and uh, rehydration. With all the wet weather from the recent La Nina weather system, Glenn's been able to see firsthand how well the contour banks are not only slowing and taking the energy out of the water, but also helping it to soak into the landscape. Right now, we've just had record amounts of rain and the whole landscape is primed with water and all of that water is either soaking into the soil or it's hitting these banks now and it's meandering, zigzagging across, going from one soap bank or swale, flowing down to the next one and they're just meandering down through the paddock. And all the energy's gone out of it. So we've moved away from the old contour bank system where it was directed to a waterway or a channel and then hit the creek. And there's a lot of erosion on the edge of all those banks and going into the gullies. We've had beautiful clean water and haven't lost any soil since um, 2007 on this property due to that little bit of earthwork. As a result, we're rehydrating, getting some real depth of moisture too. That water is just sitting there to soak slowly into the whole landscape and rehydrate all the land below it. Because we're in such a wet year, this bank's actually been holding water now for probably six months and not the same water. It's soaking in and then it's refilling. And so we've got a, a beautiful rehydrated landscape growing pasture. As the summer comes, evaporation increases. It'll just keep feeding moisture to those pastures and keep growing. So the improvements Glenn made to the water holding capacity on this property by 
installing these contour swales and holding water in the landscape has meant that he's been able to maintain ground cover and that's been really key to water and holding soil on the property and up in the landscape not only during droughts but it's also transferred into when we have flooding rain. This ground cover provides that buffer for the soil, it stops the erosion. And on top of these really practical improvements to landscape restoration, there's also, I guess, some more peripheral benefits. It also creates a beautiful environment for wildlife and all of the banks now have lots of frogs and getting quite noisy with the wildlife, all the quails and birds and everything that's just adding to the diversity of the farm and insect control. and just creating that general health of the environment. What I'm hearing from farmers is that, you know, as the landscape function returns, there's a lot of sort of peripheral benefits. Other wildlife are returning and that's also a really good key indicator of well-being for the farmers. Oh, absolutely. Well-being of the farmers and financial well-being as well. The diversity that stems from installing things like these contour banks as whales it flows on not just in the swales, but also through into the paddocks and the diversity of the pastures that it can support. People talk about diversity and, and often what's missed is that the greatest benefits from the diversity are that there's different types of grasses that are able to respond to different weather events or different seasons and healthier livestock. So Matt, we're gonna get on the road again and head from Inverell all the way down south towards Braidwood. Long drive, lots of podcasts on the way. <laughs> we visited Martin Royds down at his farm, Gillamatong, where he's taken over the family farm and been through some challenging times and explored different ways to focus on rehydrating the landscape. Let's let Martin tell the story. <laughs> My name's Martin Royds and Gillamatong's two kilometres from Braidwood. So on Gillamatong we run beef cattle, We've got a, an egg operation mainly to control weeds and fertilise the property and we've harvest native grasses, we've got yabbies, truffles and other small enterprises. So Gillamatong's a granite based soil, it was cleared here in probably the 1860s. It, to my grandfather, first started off with about 600 acres. It's now 435 hectares. From what I can see, the 1900s was when the landscape really started changing. From the 82 drought, where we bared the land and it took a while to recover, to now excessive changes in temperature and rainfall and dry periods. And in 2017, 18, 19, the Shoalhaven River went bone dry. The Mongalo River went bone dry, which is the first time in living memory that's happened. So these fires and droughts and floods are seriously making it difficult to farm in this area. At the end of the 82 drought, I can remember weeping as a cow just collapsed and the grass was starting to grow but it was really we'd battered it that much it was not going to come back quickly and this cow just had given up and you feel despair yeah it's amazing how you can feel that despair 
And you see it in a lot of farmers still. And for me, that crossroads was about 1985. And it took me five years to figure out a way of getting out of that. And I've been fortunate to get hold of some of the best people I think on the planet to get insights onto how to work with the land to build resilience into it. Over the years, Martin's done various courses in holistic land management and worked with people like Dr. Christine Jones, Walter Yenner, Nicole Masters, and Peter Andrews. And the first stop on our farm tour was a weir named after Peter that plays a central part in the farm's journey towards rehydration. I call this Peter Andrews Weir. He came here in 2005 and said, if I put a weir in here, I'll never have a water problem again. At that stage, this was part of the erosion gully running right down the system, draining the water and fertility off the farm. And for very little money, we put a weir in here and I actually put 14 weirs down the erosion gully system and they filled up in the first rain event in the middle of winter. And since then, they've been full of water. This, in 2019, when the Shoalhaven River was dry, this still, it had dropped that much, but basically it was full of water. And the reason is because it's not the water we see here. This has actually slowed the water coming out of the entire landscape. So most of the water is actually, we can't see it's off in the landscape. The landscape is like a bank for storing water during dry times, but the key is preparing it to be ready to accept rain. And Martin tells us a bit about the principles that he's used to get the farm to that place. The principal things you're looking at doing is slowing the water down. First, the easiest one is to stop the erosion gullies draining the system. Then you go higher up the slope and put contours around so you catching the water, spreading it out. We've got a double contour system. The first one spreads the water out. The second one's got your compost heaps in them. And that then fertility and water leaches down through your farm. Then you've got your motored dams at the bottom, harvesting the fertility, the grass growing really well, the cattle taking that back up. The whole thinking is all the time, how do I get fertility back up to the top of the hill and then let gravity bring it back down again? And to better understand that flow of fertility, Martin took us to visit one of several dams dotted throughout the property. So this is a standard dam. It's been here for 30, 40 years. It's been cleaned out a couple of times in dry times. What I thought about the last time I was cleaning it out was one, we used to throw the mud over the wall and it just sat there inert. So instead of doing that, we've put that in smiley faces up the hill to catch the rainfall when we've got a rain event. And then we also put in this moat here. So the water comes down, fills in there, settles, leaves the fertility there that then this can utilise and grow and the cattle can eat that and take back up to the top of the hill. And one thing we've noticed is that when you've got clean, healthy water, the stock seem to come and have a drink and then go back up on top of the hill where it's cooler in summer, warmer in winter, and they ruminate and take the fertility up the hill. So. If stock get clean, healthy water, you can increase production by 12%, just so it's an easy win. So that's when we started troughing water. But when we've got healthy, clean water with a, a healthy biodiversity in it, they get that anyway. You get less evaporation off this than if it was muddy water, by far. 
it's counterintuitive. People think that all the water plants are going to be sucking water out and it's going to be evaporating, but that's evapotranspiration that cools the water and actually ends up less water gets, goes off the dam than if it's just muddy. But the best thing here is my biggest dam is my soil. And so most of my water is getting stored up there in a rain event and then it slowly trickles in here clean and so I've constantly got water coming in. And the best example is in 2019 the Shoalhaven River over my back fence was bone dry and this system was still trickling 20,000 litres a day. It blew us away that it was just still trickling out three years into a drought and we still had green grass coming up. And with that water cycle, another thing we've learnt is that those little drops of water you see on there, the dew that you get every morning, my green grass is capturing that every day. But if I've got bare ground or dry grass, you don't get that dew. So often the grass is staying alive purely on what it captures every night. And that could be one, could be two, two millimetres a day. And we hit dew point here 200 days a year, so that's 200 mils I'm getting that my neighbour's not getting. How come you've got green grass and we don't? And it's that daily water cycle. It's what's happening in the soil. When you've got the cover, you don't get the evaporation. So I get a two mil, three mil rain event, and it's going into the system, whereas you can get five or 10 mils on bare soil, soaks in, evaporates off, no effect. It's these things that we're just still learning about that are exponential difference for very little cost. In fact, less cost than what we used to do. The way Martin describes it, it all sounds so obvious and easy, but also because he's been through his own journey of unlearning what he's been taught and thinking differently about how he farms. What we saw at Martin's farm, he's really utilised an understanding of how the Australian landscape works, linking in functioning water cycles with functioning nutrient cycles and trying to slow water down from moving through his property while retaining fertility. And by storing both water and fertility in the landscape is really you know, improved the resilience of the landscape to particularly drought, but also other climate extremes. The installation of the leaky weirs that Martin has put in, they've really acted to slow down the erosion or prevent the future erosion. And what was coming with that erosion was that the landscape was being drained of water but also the fertility was leaching out into those gullies so by installing these weirs slowing the water down and storing it in the landscape is then allowed the resilience to drought because you've got the storage of water in, in the weir itself but it's really the landscape that holds 90 percent of the water what martin's done on his farm to reinstate these leaky weirs throughout the catchment is Pretty amazing. It looks wonderful. And if you actually want to see it, you can check out the videos that we've created and we'll put links in the show notes to the videos for these particular farms. But just before we finish up and leave Jilamatong, I just wanted to play this little segment 
at the end of our interview with Martin, I really get that he's become very humbled by his role on the farm, going from controlling to being a steward of the land and listening to what the landscape needs. Farming for the last 5,000 years has always been focused on how much we can get from the land. And what I've learned from the Aboriginal people that I've met is they give to the land to get back. The big thing in holistic management is changing thinking. Changing from how many cows have you got to what's your goal. Now I can see that everything I do is actually positive. It's building biodiversity, it's building soil carbon, it's building resilience into my landscape for fire, drought, flood. We didn't have floods after the fires. The Shoalhaven River flooded, I think it's 12 times now in the last three years, and I haven't lost a fence. The water's run off clear all the time. When you see muddy rivers, or see floods on the television and they're all muddy, it's wrong. That's our assets washing out to sea. We've had the same rain here, but it didn't run off muddy. And that's, that means my fertility is not going off. I don't have to buy something in to replace it. It stayed here. And the sun's energy is what fires this farm. And yeah, I see a bright future and I get people who come here from the city who are feeling in despair about the planet and they seem to go oh wow this really is a solution we can really have healthy food healthy landscape healthy people and healthy finances really inspiring to hear from Martin about how he's able to create this strong ecosystem on his landscape. Yeah, that's right. What I think is interesting is that from all three stories that we've heard today, all of them had a similar trigger. There was a drought event and then they got some rain and because they'd had such severe drought and such severe destruction of ground cover during those droughts. When the rain came post-drought, they had severe erosion. And it was really the erosion that a lot of them sort of speak of with a lot of emotion as, you know, that's what they're very sad to have seen. This fertility and the soil disappearing from their property or the damage that that erosion was doing. And the efforts that they've gone to improve their properties through landscape modifications they've put in have have been primarily to, to slow down the water, reduce the energy from it. And then by doing that, they've been able to reinstate that ground cover to prevent this happening again. That's had sort of flow on effects in that with a, an establishment of ground cover, then you can establish your ecosystem and the function of the landscape that supports that, both for environmental outcomes, but as, as well as just maintaining the agricultural productivity of the landscapes. If you want to find out more about those, you can click on the links that take you to the farmer's stories and we'll give you a little bit more detail. There's a written summary, but also you can watch the film about them that explores not only the practice changes that you've heard in this episode, but others as well that expand to other 
parts of the business. So really encourage you to check out those videos and read those case studies. Next episode, we're going to talk about soil health and hear from another bunch of farmers getting on the road. We're covering a lot of road miles now, Matt. (laughs) What is really important around soil health? What we've heard from a lot of the farmers we've spoken to is that their resilience to climate extremes stems from having healthy soil. And it's the, the health of the soil that brings with it functioning ecosystems, better water holding capacity, better productivity, and down the line, a, a, a better margin. Absolutely. And so if you want to find out more about the stories of farmers who are really making great gains and improvements in their soil health, check out our next episode. But for now, let's roll the credits. The Big Shift podcast is proudly produced by Grow Love Project. And this special edition Farmer Stories series has been funded through the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Climate Change Research Strategy. Thanks to all the farmers who've generously shared their time and their stories. If you like what you heard, please share it and thanks for listening.